Hi, today is April 30th, 2020. It is 11 a.m. Eastern Standard Time, and I'm Jay Khadija Abdurrahman. This is the We Be Imagining podcast. I'm here with my co-host, Ilan Mandel. What's up, Ilan? Khadija, my hair is now at the stage where my curls are really long and outrageous. And so my sister said I'm starting to look like coronavirus because, like, my individual <laughs> curls just like, all kind of stick out randomly from my head. So I'm doing great. I'm actually really excited for this development. Well, from our last Zoom call, you looked very, like, Old Testament. I don't know. About <laughs> <you> know. <laughs> but look very, like, strong, wandering Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I'm also here with my co-host Stanley Munoz. What's up, Stanley? What's up? What's up? My hair is doing perfectly fine right now. You know? <laughs> Still rocking the flat top. Still rocking the flat top. <laughs> and what time is it in San Diego? In San Diego, it is a nice eight a.m. Oh, very nice. I'm always I'm mm-hmm. always pleased that you join us at so early in the morning. Listen, you know I push through. It's for the cause. If it's for the cause, I'll do it all. <laughs> and I'm all the way excited um, that today on the show we have Abebe Barhane. She is currently a PhD student in cognitive science at University Co- College of Dublin in the School of Computer Science. She studies the dynamic and reciprocal relationships between emerging technologies, personhood, and society. Specifically, she explores how ubiquitous technologies, which are interwoven into our personal, social, political, and economical sphere, are shaping what it means to be a person. In doing so, she leans on theoretical frameworks from traditions such as embodied cognitive science, dialogism, complexity science, critical data studies, and philosophy of technology, calling in from Dublin. What's up, Abebe? Hi. Hi, Khadija. How are you doing? What time is it in Dublin right now? Uh, It's 4 p.m. Okay, so you're just five hours ahead of us. Yeah, yeah. Um, so first, before getting into the meat of your work, we wanted to kind of hear about like what does sheltering in look like for you? What's the what what's the climate of pandemic in Dublin? Oh, mm, it's uh, we are in complete lockdown. Um, it's uh, I was actually just talking to one of my lab mates, and usually we complain about how you know the lab is. Um, you know, we we try to find all sorts of excuses not to to find reasons to, to hate the lab, uh, complaining. It doesn't have, uh, it's, there, there is not fresh air circulating or whatever. But now we are all saying, oh, my God, I miss the lab. Oh, my God, I miss mm-hmm. the lab mates. And mm-hmm. I miss going, making coffee in the kitchen. And we are all like, <laughs> mm-hmm. we, we are saying, I never thought I would say I miss the lab. But uh, we, are, we are missing um, meeting each other, going for coffees and even doing like the simple things. Uh, so the, the lockdown is having a huge impact on us. Um, yeah, so the atmosphere is a bit, I don't know, kind of bleak. But I, I guess over the weeks, you kind of get used to it. You Because there is a still work to be done, there is a still teaching to be done. So you are kind of, you know, you, you get by from day to day, from hour to hour, doing what you still have to do. So... I think the pandemic kind of morphs in the background and uh, yeah, you get used to it and a new type of routine, a new type of way of doing things. Um, yeah. And originally you're from, are you from Addis in Ethiopia or what part of Ethiopia did you grow yeah, up Yeah, uh, well, I'm originally from uh, Bahardar. It's kind of the northern-ish side of uh, Ethiopia and uh, I lived in Addis as well. Uh, yeah, and... Uh, I'm I'm in Dublin in Ireland at the moment. How long have you been in Dublin? Uh years. <laughs> if I tell you then you will figure out how old I am and I wouldn't want that. <laughs> would I? <laughs> You're gonna reverse engineer. <laughs> No problem. So I was thinking that, you you know, you have such an interesting, like, uh, continuum of work, but I thought we could speak a little bit about your robots rights paper that you presented um, and some of the backlash that you received. Um, and could you kind of flesh that out for us and tell us about that? Yeah, sure. Um, so, I mean, to be honest, the robots rights paper isn't, uh, the themes aren't really the core of my PhD, but there is some overlap. Um and uh, I guess the 
robot rights paper started out as so myself and my collaborator uh, Yeli Van Dyke uh, were continually getting caught up in these Twitter debates uh, with you know there is a, a a kind of really interconnected crowd of robot rights advocates on Twitter who like each other's tweets, retweet each other's tweet, and kind of, you know, really interlinked. And you see the same stories again and again. The poor robots, you know, it's really difficult and hard being a robot uh, who is going to advocate for their rights, who's going to stand up for them. Uh, okay, maybe this is a little bit of an, an exaggeration because they, they do also have some sort of uh, philosophical reasoning, although if you ask me, kind of shallow. Uh, <laughs> so we were continually getting caught up in these debates. And um, I guess last June or July, uh, I proposed to Yelly, why don't we, instead of having this these same conversations again and again and again, why don't we write a paper and then when these conversations crop up again, we'll just point people to, to the paper and then, you know, problem solved and we wouldn't have these conversations again. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, but that's not what happened. Uh, so we, um, because we were both passionate and really kind of deeply committed, it didn't take, it wasn't as painful to write it because I find writing very painful usually. Uh, so we wrote the paper, uh, it, we submitted it to the AICS. Uh, it got accepted with really good reviews. And um, and then we shared it on Twitter. And, oh, man, a lot of people were not happy. Uh, and I guess and it's the style of the paper is not also very traditional. It's not jargony. It's really to the point. Uh, it's like a no-nonsense kind of approach. We were very kind of crude about the issues. Uh, at some point, we, for example, explain uh, arguing for robot rights is um, a first world problem that usually uh, Western white cis males uh, have the privilege to engage in. So phrases like this uh, didn't go well uh, with people. Um, but I... I but I, I'm happy with it. And I, so the core of the paper is uh, it takes, it has two, um, two core themes at least. So the first one is we uh, try to go as deep as we can in, 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 in the philosophical justifications of as to why uh, robot agents or any machines in general are distinctly different from humans and how they shouldn't be considered uh, on, on a par uh, with a human. And on the second, the second level is more political, I guess, because we are arguing uh, by giving rights to robots, are you actually extending rights to do whatever they please? Are you extending rights for the uh, people and companies and corporates who make robots because robots never make themselves? There is always people, there is always agents who make these systems and by giving them rights, are you evading responsibility and is, evap- is uh, accountability evaporating because you are kind of, uh, who are you going to pinpoint responsibility to when a system built by a corporate entity, uh, you know, does some harm to individual people. And we point out various examples uh, of um, these situations where, for example, you had, I think last October, we ha- you had a wheelchair user. Uh, she was blocked by a Starship robot. And she raises this uh, concern of how a robot is blocking uh, accessibility of the road for her. So if you follow the robot rights logic, you end up kind of arguing, uh is it like, do we prioritize the robot or or the, the, the right of the person that's on the wheelchair? So it doesn't matter whether you come down to one side to on, on the right of the person on the wheelchair or on the right of the robot. For us, the very idea of putting the right of the, the person up for debate is just uh, dehumanizing and very wrong. Um, yeah, so that's that's kind of the, the core of the paper. 
So I, I read this paper and I really liked it. And I want to say that I work in the field of human robot interaction. I build robots, we study robots, right? Like there is a fair amount of just like interaction design and, and things like that, that we study. And I was, I was fascinated when Khadija told me that there was uh, some amount of pushback to this paper, because I can't imagine anyone I work with who like actually goes and builds robots ever suggesting that like robots rights is like a, a pertinent to dis discussion to be having right at this moment. I saw it submitted into AIES and I was, I was curious about like kind of, okay, there is, there is some value in maybe having a discussion about you create a synthetic being capable of experiencing pain, but that's not really something that, that feels at all within the realm of the world of where robots are right now. Yeah. And I'm no, just no. curious of, like who is who is this like what is what is the field that is having this discussion like who who is interested in bringing up these concepts and like what is like what is what is the kind of like field of debate around this yeah so i want name names uh, on of this course, podcast yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but there are like there are very big predominant names, both within cognitive science and uh, philosophy and artificial intelligence. Maybe I'll name names when, when they are big and doesn't matter. So <laughs> uh, like Daniel Dennett and um, Ray Kurzweil, he's one of the big proponents of robot rights. But uh, on Twitter, there is a, like a, a big cluster of people who are writing books, who are you know, who have this really solid community uh, where they either have really kind of um, philosophical commitments to, you know, if a robot can, they, they try to define learning or intelligence or cognition a certain way. And their ground is that if a robot or if a machine can exhibit those qualities and characteristics, uh, their argument goes, then not giving right is kind of advocating for the superiority of uh, being a human, uh, which is a fair point. Uh, but when you kind of dig down deeper, uh, you find their argument is just doesn't hold water, really. And and you are lucky not to, not to uh, have heard of people uh, in your uh, community advocating for robot rights. <laughs> I mean, the, the first... The first job I had with robots was like a, a kind of summer internship I did in my undergrad. And we were kind of researching kind of robots and have interactions with children, whatever. The, the study is a little bit less important. But the first thing she said during the interview was like, oh, like if the robot breaks, can you fix it? She's like, the first rule of robotics is the robot always breaks. Right? Like the idea that we're like on the edge of these like super, super intelligent beings that, that like we will feel intense empathy for, I, I, I am skeptical of. But I was curious, um, when you said any being of, any, any system capable of exhibiting these traits, does that mean if I, if I create a system which, which it's entirely fake, but it is just giving you the impression it is in pain, these people are advocating that like we should treat it as if it's in pain? Yeah, yeah. Um, well, that that might be like the extreme position, you know. Even within robot rights, there are various positions and various uh, people as well. So maybe like really naive ones would go as far as kind of uh, attributing uh, the robot feeling pain or experiencing some sort of consciousness. Uh, but I think the some of the most reasonable ones would um, kind of argue, uh, like the way you mentioned, uh, actually the example you gave about your undergrad, uh, uh, was it an internship? Uh, it was a it was a job, but yeah. Okay, a job. <laughs> no worries, yeah. Yeah, so yes, if we feel some sort of empathy for the robot, if, if it breaks and it always breaks, as you said, Stanley, uh, you fix it. And if we feel some sort of empathy, then do we give it right? That's, uh, for me, if we feel some sort of empathy, then it doesn't reflect anything on the robot. It still remains just a system that we build. 
it reflects on our, our, our state of being. It reflects on humans and our ability to feel sympathy and empathy rather than, uh, you know, some sort of quality that the robot has. I could not agree more. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Something that really just resonated with me in the section, I think it's 2.1 of that paper where you're talking about the reframing of, um, uh, sorry, let me pull it up, a, part, a post-Cartesian reframing. And in the second paragraph, you kind of explain embodied and active cognitive science. And to me, it also connected to your piece, Fair Warning in Real Life Magazine, where Weizenbaum, initially part of the project to simulate human thought, came to see that the re- approach resting on a gross misunderstanding of humans is mere information processing systems. Yes. And just for all the talk of like artificial neural networks, to me, the most interesting thing is designing these machines that are processing information, but don't have nervous systems, don't. Uh, bring in like visceral afferent sensor or motor information. And when I think about like what it means to be human, so much of it is that not just nonverbal body language per se, or facial expressions, but just those like chemical responses and pheromones and things um, kind of coming from the environment and like this intersubjectivity between ourselves and the other person. Yes. And just why could you just share a little bit about like, why is that missing so much from, or, or maybe you can disagree, but why is that missing? My impression is why is that missing so much from the design of robots? Yeah, so I, so you you kind of um, summarize it really well there, Khadija. Um, I don't think it's missing. It's so much as uh, it's missing from robot design, but that those you know qualities, those relationships, those uh, kind of uh, intrinsic. Uh, relationships and and interdependency and intersubjectivity and the you know the broader idea of we exist in a broad community uh, and our activities and our behavior just the very the very idea of our being is constantly co-being with others uh, and there is culture uh, there is history and there are norms there are so many unwritten rules when you live, you know, your day-to-day life. Uh, you, you, I don't just, um, if like when I'm on this podcast, for example, there are some appropriate ways of speaking and expressing myself. Uh, if I uh, then go outside and I, you know, if I'm with strangers outside, there are some, you know, norms and common um culturally appropriate ways of behaving. Uh, if I'm with my, in my family, it's also different. And I think those things are really difficult to kind of formalize and to, to implement into design, to program into a computer, because these are not rules that you can write down. The, 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 the fact that the, the moment you write them down, they cease to be rules. So um, it's not that we can't. It's not that it's missing from the robot design. It's just that these are things that are really, uh, you know, wibbly-wobbly and really difficult to kind of grasp and formalize and put into, into programmable language. And these are, for me, and I think for a lot of uh, thinkers, as you mentioned for Weizenbaum, these are qualities that make us humans, that kind of separates us, uh, that makes us different from machines. And uh, it's uh, it, you cannot program these things. And this is what the, the inactive and the embodied perspective of uh, understanding cognition and understanding human being, uh, it, it's underlined by these perspectives. So for embodied cognition perspective, for example, uh, cognition or learning or just being a person is not limited to understanding the brain or is not limited. Knowledge doesn't equal, you know, building a coherent logical argument uh, or being able to construct, you know, a really formal uh, sentence. It's about being in the world. It's about being active. It's about, uh, you know, Herbert Dreyfus would, would say skillful coping. You just 
you 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 adapt to your environment you you know you tackle things as they come at you and it's these kind of things that are usually in the traditional cognitive science these are seen as secondary importance or not something that uh, represent or that are at the core of cognition or learning or intelligence but the embodied cognitive perspective is kind of expanding what it means to 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 have intelligent intelligence or what it means to be to this very broad and social and ethical realm and we in in the paper we kind of extend this understanding of cognition and what learning is and what intelligence is to this very broad uh, area of the of embodied cognitive science and if you approach cognition or learning or intelligence from this very broad from very active and uh, kind of unrestrained and holistic view then you realize these are things that are not that you cannot necessarily uh, you know formalize and and program and implement into a machine yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, to me, what's interesting is I, I share the piece that you did in Eon about why Descartes is wrong with pretty much everybody in my life. Um, one of the, the angry responses yeah, I got nice. was that, <laughs> no, I just really appreciated it. I mean, for multiple reasons, but one of the responses that, that I've gotten is that, well, maybe maybe you're oversimplifying the position of the Cartesians and that who really thinks that, you know, we are just what we think. Um, and that's just like a heuristic model for understanding things. But I, I, I was reminded of Stephen Hawking right before he died. He did a podcast episode with Neil deGrasse Tyson, the um, the uh, cosmologist at the American Museum of Natural History. Yeah. And, you know, clearly, like his position was in part shaped, uh, Hawking's position was in part shaped by the fact that he had Lou Gehrig's syndrome and had very little control over his body. But he was basically saying, like, if it was possible, I would like my brain to be in some kind of liquid liquefied jar and mm-hmm. connect it up to a computer in order that I could communicate and my body yes. is just a vessel um for my brain yeah. and that kind of like <laughs> epistemology to me has yes. really shaped the fairness accountability transparency space where when the ethical like commitments that are being made is like for example around facial recognition is this yes. software accurate you know, let's let's assess the impacts and the differentiated impacts across like race and socioeconomic class when the technology is implemented. But it's not really asking the question of like, what does it mean when a human being sees someone versus the computer vision seeing someone? And like, what are the differences in those gazes? And I'm just wondering, like, how, why, why? Do you feel like the, I mean, I saw that you presented this paper, AI Ethics, and I think some of those people are the policy, uh, legal kind of framework, but do you think that this conversation around an active cognition is enough in conversation with the fairness, accountability conversation? And like, if not, like, why are there those divisions? So those are like, even, so my uh, my PhD is very, um, interdisciplinary because I draw, as you mentioned at the beginning of this podcast, I draw from um, complex system science, from embodied cognitive science, uh, from uh, critical race studies, critical data studies. So I inherently touch upon uh, AI ethics. So even after, so I'm on my third year of the PhD now, even after three years, and even longer when I was doing my master's two years before that, even after years of thinking about this, I feel like, yes, I have got the connection between, you know, the anti-Cartesian embodied perspective uh, of reality, of cognition, of intelligence. And on the other hand, uh, you know, the AI ethics side of things, questions of accountability, justice and fairness, and I feel like sometimes I see the connection. Sometimes it just feels like two completely desperate and separate endeavors that are that have different aims. So I don't know. I I hope by the end of my fourth year, by the end of the PhD, I see the picture much more clearly. Uh, yeah, I don't know if that answers your question. <laughs> 
Yeah, no, it's something that I'm still working through. I mean, like one of the things that came to mind when I was rereading the papers before this podcast um, was I was thinking about, do you know Jeanette Wing? She's a former Microsoft executive, and she's now the director of the DSI Data Science Institute at Columbia University. I think I've heard of that name. She wrote in 2006, she presented this paper at ASM, uh, ACM called um, Computational Thinking. It's a very like pithy, short, maybe two and a half page essay. Um, and this is kind of the, to me, it seems like it's evolved to be the blueprint for K through 12 STEM education globally. Um, and it just makes this argument that all of us should be thinking more computationally and that we should even have introductory courses across all disciplines in computer science to get people thinking more like engineers. Mm. Um, and it talks about computational thinking is using heuristic reasoning to discover solution, planning, yeah. learning scheduling the presence of uncertainty and just that it's just interesting the juxtaposition between there's like the canonical arguments about algorithmic bias that I'm just an engineer and like how could I be thinking about issues and then on the other hand on the education side we're saying well more people should be thinking like engineers and this to me is where you see like the kind of this very specific cognitive science merging with the the ethical space yeah so I guess, like broadly speaking, on the uh, on the one hand, you have uh, this computational thinking you mentioned, this prioritizing of uh, engineering skills, uh, prioritizing of uh, mathematical formalization of social problems, and it's it's kind of reductive because it reduces it reduces uh, knowledge or social relation or you know intelligence or being to something you can eventually formalize and codify and you will have a full, complete understanding of, which is very much in line with, you know, Cartesian thinking. Uh, And on the other hand, which, again, broadly speaking, on the other hand, you have this uh, broader uh, thinking of embodied cognition and uh, system science where instead of kind of trying to reduce things, trying to formalize them, it's continually kind of pointing out how fuzzy and ambiguous reality is, how fuzzy and you can, not something you can fully grasp the nature of cognition or human beings are. Uh, because as, as far as, you know, systems thinking go, human beings and social systems are, uh, you know, not something you can fully specify, not something that you can understand once and for all, but they are systems that are continually adapting, that are continually changing. You cannot specify, you cannot predict my behavior, what what I will do in the in the long or in the short future, because there are infinite possibilities for me to to behave and act, and you cannot specify them all. And the idea of predicting my behavior is, you know, for, for um, you know, embodied cognition and systems thinking that is continually trying to embrace this ambiguous and fuzzy nature of um, human beings is somewhat uh, in contradiction with the other, the former perspective, you know, the Cartesian perspective, who, who, which is kind of reductionist. Uh, so speaking of which, I have just submitted a paper that explores... Um, this space where on the one hand you have machine learning systems that are specialist, you know, machine learning systems that are used to predict social outcomes. So on the one hand, you have such system that is, you know, continually classifying whether it's faces or behaviors or actions, it's continually classifying uh, those aspects and it's trying to predict how, what product I will buy next or how I will behave uh, next or what why, what my next move would be. But on the other hand, you have this very grounded science of systems thinking and embodied cognition saying that no human beings are inherently unpredictable because of such and such and such. So you have this conflict and that eventually leads to, so when, when you eventually force classification into something that's unclassifiable, you end up with some sort of harm, especially when you are trying to classify, say, for example, gender, uh, 
or you know other ambiguous characteristics you end up misclassifying or harming uh, or kind of excluding people that do not conform to the status quo so yes you can kind of broadly see those things in two broad perspectives and uh, you can see at least where they uh, are not compatible with each other Hmm. So with that in mind, it's it's clear to see the engineers and their um, their thinking, how they think that they can codify thought, right, or human experience. Um, on the other end, the second perspective that you mentioned, where you have these people, uh, cognitive scientists especially, who are focusing on embodied knowledge, uh, what kind of AI systems are they um, trying to develop if they are um, developing any AI systems at all? Or are they still trying to theorize around what that could look like before creating these systems? Um, so again, you know, the the embodied pers- embodied cognitive science, which is a very kind of small and uh, very uh, minority perspective within the broader cognitive science perspective, uh, so even embodied cognitive science itself is very broad. It varies from people working in AI to people working in uh, purely theoretical and philosophical uh, aspects and some building models. So it's it, it's also very uh, it varies also greatly even within the narrow field of cognitive science. So I think for my for 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 me at least. The aspect I'm familiar with the, and the aspect I am interested in is the, the kind of the ethical end of things it's where people are not trying to build AI, but where people are trying to kind of point out, uh, you know, if your AI is ultimately trying to pick out, you know, uniformity or trying to kind of order things that are messy and things are messy because, you know, that's how reality is. That is the whole anti-Cartesian perspective. Uh, then a lot of their position is then you have to be cautious because you end up doing more harm. So it's a lot of kind of um, critical reaction grounded in, uh, you know, solid philosophical uh, and empirical work. Um, if if that makes sense, if that answers your question. Yeah, it does. Yeah, cool. Um, and what I mean, also just to pull pull back for a second is that we're also in this moment of being kind of atomized in our houses during the pandemic, and I was just curious, you know, thinking about the piece that you had in in Eon, Descartes was wrong. A person is a person through other persons. You have this really compelling but grim example towards the end about solitary confinement in prison yes. and talking about how deprived of contact and interaction, the external perspective needed to consummate and sustain a coherent self-image, you people risk disappearing from non-existence. So on one hand, you know, I think it's a false comparison to say that sheltering in is the same as being incarcerated for a myriad of different reasons. But at the same time, our ability to socialize um, is very much driven by kind of the way that your family or home life is organized. Like, for example, do you live with a partner or other people? Are you completely by yourself? Do you have access to the Internet? And are you able to continue working or communicate with people through social media, et cetera? But what do you what's kind of your um, not thesis, but just kind of meditations on what is the happening to the notion of self in this moment? Yeah, yeah. So that's that's something I've also been thinking about and reflecting as well. Uh, yes, so I'm glad you picked out that passage on solitary confinement. Uh, so that is so a lot of people, even like traditional cognitive science, when you point out, you know, interrelation and others are really essential and they are necessary for the existence of self and nobody would you know dispute they say yeah of course you know we're all social beings but then people would go back to to doing you know their their uh, very individualistic designing their very individualistic research methods or still operating under the assumption that the brain equals the person or cognition equals something you represent in your mind or in your head or whatever. So I, but when, 
But then when you look at um, solitary confinement, it really brings out the example in a really stark manner. Because at the conception of solitary confinement, I think back uh, 200 years ago, the idea was that, you know, being a person means, you know, that that you you kind of, because the idea of a person is something that can be rational, that something that can rationalize his thought or her thoughts, you know, uh, something that can think. And then uh, if people do something wrong, you put them in solitary confinement because that would give them time without any distraction of the outside world, without any interference of other people, then the person in solitary confinement with reason and would logic themselves out of the crimes they have done. So that was, that was the, it was like kind of giving you space to reflect on your sins and to repent and to come back into, into society as a claims, you know, newly formed person. But what, what happened, what was happening and what continues to happen because there is a huge rise in solitary confinement, especially in the U.S., and people still understand how soul-destroying solitary confinement is. But what happens is when people go into solitary confinement, instead of you know being led by logic, instead of reflecting on their state, instead of you know reasoning and coming back to their senses, they just they suffer from various psychological, mental, and some sometimes physical problems. People suffer from hallucination, they lose sense of time. In worst cases, they cannot tell the difference between where their body ends and other people or the rest of the world begins. So it really shows in a very grounded and empirical and scientific manner that when people are removed from other people, they do not logic, they do not reason themselves into existence. They just disappear from existence because others, other people are inherent and necessary to sustain my sense, you know, your sense of existence. You know, I, I come to know myself through what you say about me, through how other people react to me, through other people's inputs. You know, other people are like a mirror that help me realize myself. And sorry, I'm, I'm, I have lost thought into, <laughs> this is my passion, I was solitary confinement. I'm not, I mean, I'm not passionate, but it's, I think it's a really good, but very sad uh, example. And now I've lost the, the question. Uh, sorry, the question, just... <laughs> No, no, it's okay. Is that, um, you know, without making the false equivalence between solitary confinement and sheltering in place. Yes, uh, yes. What do we do with this moment that we're all kind of alone? Yeah, so... Obviously, you know, as you said, it varies from person to person, whether you live with others and, you know, whether you, you what kind of uh, environment you live in. Uh, but I think for me personally, I am feeling the impact of, you know, the lack of interpersonal relationship with, with my lab mates, with my friends, with my family. So, and you cannot compare it with solitary confinement because... One, it's, it's uh, you know, we are not forced. I mean, not in the sense of when people are put into solitary confinement in the prison system. Uh, in, I know in this case, you can say it's somewhat voluntary. Uh, and two, we have, we are not completely cut out from the rest of the world. As you said, we have the internet. Even our Twitter interaction counts for some sort of interaction, in my view, at least. Uh, so we still have, interactions we still have ongoing relations with others but it's reduced and for me i feel it because i sometimes it's i i cannot concentrate and i get really frustrated and i really really miss that you know being with with my colleagues and my friends and um, i'm sure other people also have similar or somewhat you know various experience but my feeling is people do suffer and there is going to be a huge psychological toll, a huge psychological impact due to, uh, you know, the this the mental toll, the you know, you know, depression or anxiety, this isolation might be causing, and uh, that's that's my thinking anyway. And do you see 
I mean, just preemptively, everybody that we bring onto the show, I really want them to solve, like, you know, white supremacy, capitalism, kind of structural inequity. So this might be unfair question. Um, but do you see any hope as the pandemic operates as kind of an intervention in this moment? Do you see any hope as far as people re- reconsidering the baseline assumptions of how society is organized? Is there new space or opportunities for us to move forward differently. Arundhati Roy wrote a piece a couple of weeks ago, Pandemic as Portal, kind of uh, referencing this notion that it's not about a return to normal, but passing through this moment into a different kind of being or way of becoming a society. Is there anything that you see right now that's pointing towards kind of those, uh, an opportunity to change as a society? Uh... That is a huge question, <laughs> very big, and I don't know. Generally, I'm a pessimist person, uh, <laughs> especially when it comes to capitalism. I just see the worst, and I feel like my fear and worry is justified somehow. Uh, but I mean, I mean, we're we're still the pandemic is not over yet. We don't know what kind of you know, it's, I I don't know, it's, uh, we're obviously not gonna, you know, at some stage, the pandemic is just gonna be, you know, swiftly over. And it's, it's not like we're just gonna go back to normal, normal in uh, quote marks, it's, uh, it's gonna be gradual. And I don't know uh, how long that will take and what kind of society will emerge out of that. Uh, but in terms of this pandemic giving an opportunity to kind of you know restructure society, I don't I don't see the positive in, in that. I see you know the likes of Amazon. You know this pandemic is bringing even huge fortunes. You know it's making them even richer. People, if anything, this pandemic is making the richer the rich richer and. People who are at the front line, you know, people who work in supermarkets, stocking shelves, uh, people who are really poor, you know, uh, people who rely, you know, on their day-to-day lives, who they are, they are even more impacted at the expense of rich people making more money. So, um, without changing that, I don't know how this pandemic will restructure. It will just, for me at least, and mind, I'm pessimist as I mentioned. I see it as, you know, a huge, um, I don't know, It's I, I see it as something that is further pushing the vulnerable and the poor and the marginalized even further to the margin and disadvantaging them even further rather than as something that is restructuring society for the better, I'm afraid. <laughs> I mean, for what it's worth, your pessimism is in good company among the co-hosts uh, here on this podcast. Yay! Uh, <laughs> Absolutely. I'm kind of of the mindset. I, I, I do ascribe to like tentative optimism uh, only because I'm well aware of injustice, particularly as it comes to Black people, like in the diaspora. But, you know, we have survived despite, right? So, I mean, sometimes I take some hope in that for whatever it's worth. One of the other questions I had is that the majority, my father's side of the family is from Ethiopia. In 2009, I, yes, although, you know, like I grew up here, my mother is American, white American, and, you know, they forever call me Ferengi. And uh, (laughs) I definitely have a very American uh, lifestyle. Uh, yes. But the the memory that comes back to, and I've been to Bardara, I, tra- I traveled all throughout the North. Oh, wow. Sarah. Nice. Um, yeah, I love Ethiopia. But my the visceral memory that I have was getting, uh, getting off the airport in Addis Ababa, and there was a funeral. And there was people just like a crowd of maybe 30, 40 people just like wailing and screaming and sobbing over this body and then there was just like masses of people like selling food walking around it was just like room like walking into this crowd of people and it's like yes very interesting because the kind of 
Christian, Protestant, westernized funeral is very silent. People hang, yes. you know, hide behind a veil. It's very quiet. You don't have these um, public displays of, of despair. And yeah. for me, and actually that same day, it was the Prophet Muhammad's birthday. And okay. so they take me to someone's house. My grandmother is there, all these older women. The imam is there. And everybody's engaged in this deep prayer. And in the center of them is like this giant pile of chat. Um, <laughs> which is, for those that don't know, it's kind of like a chewable amphetamine, but like socially is very similar to weed in that everybody uh, oh, wow. uses it and it's very like socially acceptable. Yeah. And so it was like. But it's banned in many countries. <laughs> But it was this deep religious moment. Yeah. And simultaneously, everybody was getting high together, like intergenerationally. Um, yeah, yeah. And to me, it was just like this grief, this despair, this amazing like social moment. And I was wondering if you could speak to kind of there's one of the things that I love about you is how you come for people's life on Twitter, particularly like white women academics that want to police your every thought and like question all of your qualifications the moment that you call out their racism right yeah and i don't know I, i'm not very optimistic about like cha changing like white academics right yeah, yeah but what about this philosophy of the everyday and like how can we yeah. kind of bring in this social experience into the conversation or is that even the right formulation like what a, do you see yourself like post-graduation like kind of just living among the people and intervening in these different ways or like what um it's kind of a completed thought but i don't know if that makes sense yeah to yeah, yeah yeah so uh first of all disclaimer i am much nicer in person than i appear on twitter <laughs> I, I think that's a common trait of the internet in general yeah absolutely <laughs> yeah but i think being a black woman it's just it's not my uh it's not my experience only, but something a lot of other black women academics share is you hear so much resistance. Um, I say something tribal, you know, my, that my uh, white male colleagues would say, and they wouldn't get any reaction. But I say the same thing. I would get so much pushback. I would say get so much mansplanation. I would get so much sometimes, you know, hate. I get emails. I got... I got so many, I, I still keep getting so many long emails, even over my Descartes was wrong piece, which you would think is very tribal, common sense. And it's, so I think being a black woman on Twitter puts you at a much higher risk for, uh, you know, these, you know, reactions that you don't want. So it kind of conditions to conditions you to, um, to, you know this position where where you are where you always anticipate you know the worst or the haters and you are on standby you know you you are always defensive so it it's unfortunate but you you become that so my uh i don't know no nonsense or intolerant approach on twitter comes from that uh so apart having put that uh away and so you're, it's nice the way you exp this, kind of described your uh, experience and how even though you are half Ethiopian, people still call you Ferengi. Even for me, I, I, I was born, I grew up, and I lived there until recently in Ethiopia. And because I have lived in the West for some years, so when I go back home, because I have changed, because I have, you know, different values my values have moved people still don't see me as genuine ethiopian they see me as somewhat westernized so even though they don't call me ferengi like you uh ferengi means in, in amharic means foreigner uh i still get you know that you are not fully ethiopian kind of attitude so also you come to europe and you know i know i will never be you know seen as a european so mm -hmm. i guess kind of uh traveling around puts you in that position uh in a way you don't belong to one place comfortably uh but i have given up on the idea of finding a perfect home long ago because it's better to come to terms with that and kind of uh you know embrace the fact that you a little bit of you belong here and a little bit of you belong elsewhere 
And, you know, that way it's better than kind of searching for the perfect home, which you will never find. And in terms of going back home, yes, of course, I will always, you know, my heart is, my research is always, you know, bringing back, you know, uh, bringing justice and, you know, amplifying voices that haven't been heard. And in uh, one of my projects with my colleagues, uh, we, for for example, have a project where we are exploring uh, data sharing uh, in and for Africa. And we kind of look into what barriers exist for African countries, uh, what are the challenges that are getting in the way of collecting data, sharing data. So hopefully I will always be you know, my work will always be grounded with something back home or something that will give something back home. And you see, the more I delve into this project, the more you realize a lot for a great extent, Africa's stories is told by non-Africans. So I see my work in this data sharing project, for example, as a way of contributing to telling Africa's stories by Africans. Uh, So yeah, hopefully... I, I mean, I will I will have home here and there and everywhere, you know, little bits of it. And that's that's the dream. One thing that I find fascinating is that I'm good friends with and I've I've done some programming with uh, Radiata Bebe. And yes. <laughs> she's black- she's my colleague. She's my lead in the data sharing project. She's our lead. And she's actually the one that introduced me to Elan. We love Red. She's wonderful. Ah. <laughs> yeah, she's great. Yes, she's amazing. She's, oh my gosh, she's an amazing mentor, a great person, a very kind, smart, intelligent. Uh, I, I can't say enough good things about her. The thing that I find fascinating, I know that she had the bittersweet moment of being congratu- congratulated by Cornell of being the first black woman to uh, to graduate with a PhD in computer science from Cornell. And yeah. it's this crazy moment where it's like, of course, she's very capable and it's an incredible accomplishment. But in 2000, I can't remember if it was this year or last year, 2019, 2020, for it to be the first black woman feels like in its own way, a slap in the face. Yeah, Black and AI yeah. is an incredible organization. I'm just fascinated by the fact that Ethio- like it's run by two Ethiopian women. Yes. Um, yeah. Even though they're trying to do stuff all around the continent, you're Ethiopian. You know, I noticed that a disproportionate people who are in this space in Western countries are Ethiopian um, or African-born versus Black American. And do you have any thoughts on that, or is, do you think it's just coincidence, or is there kind of a reason? For um, that? I don't know. I. I don't, we, I had, we had some informal discussion with some of the Black and AI members uh, last time about why a huge disproportionate number of Black and AI members are uh, from the African continent rather than Black Americans. And, you know, there is, uh, there is some tension because uh, some of the African Americans feel underrepresented uh, but also the Africans feel uh, like, you know, the African, the Black Americans are already kind of part of a Western society. So this is a space for Africans who don't get that much exposure or international spaces. So I don't want to take side. I but I just want to point out there is some tension, and it's the you know both good justifications and reasons. So, uh, but everybody is of course you know, one community and everybody supports each other. No, it's real. Sometimes the conversation is so taken up by fighting against uh, like the microaggressions of like white supremacists in these spaces. We don't have time to address like inter-community yes. issues, yeah. right? Yeah, um, exactly. Which are, are vast in many. I mean, the one thing I just wanted to say about Ethiopia is that I often joke around that like the way that indigenous people in um, Canada or like in, in Alaska have hundreds of words for snow. I feel like we have hundreds of words for the other. Um, yes. <laughs> like thinking about it, in addition to Ferengi, another one is Falasha, referring to Beta Israel, the northern Ethiopia, the Ethiopian Jewish people. And yeah. Falasha is like, I don't know the literal translation, but it's kind of like exotic other. And it's, and just like inter- anecdotally, like I used to work in an Ethiopian restaurant and when somebody Ethiopian would come in and they have the Jewish star and they know that they're Beta Israel, they're like, <gasps> like their loyalty is tied to somewhere else other than Ethiopia. Like, why would you want to pick something else? 
or I think it's just interesting. We similar to Mexico, people associate the national language of being Spanish, but then there's mm-hmm. all these other indigenous languages. And I know there's a movement in Ethiopia, like should we teach in the schools, um, in addition to Amharic, like other dialects from outside of the region that people are growing up in? Like how do you create this like national identity among a heterogeneous yeah. population? Yeah. Um, yeah, that's a complex topic that we won't have time to get into because it's, yeah, very broad and complex. <laughs> but we're in the 54th minute, and I just I want to open up if Stanley and Lan, you have other questions, but then also our tradition is at the end of every episode, we have people share a recommendation of something they're reading or watching. It could be on topic or off uh, with our audience. But first, Stanley and Lan, did you want to add any kind of comments? I just wanted to say if you have work coming out or things you want to promote, uh, if there's anything like that, uh, we'd love to hear about it. Um, thank you so much for uh, an amazing opportunity. Uh, so, yeah, as, as I said, I have a paper uh, that I just submitted. I don't know if it will be accepted. It's called uh, In Defense of Our Uncertainty. Uh, so I will uh, give you guys a shout on Twitter uh, when it comes out, if it gets published. Uh, but I don't really have anything else to promote. Thank you. No problem. Stanley, anything? Oh, uh, yeah. Uh, I guess a quick, quick, um, possibly a quick question. But um, I think I love that you and Khadija just like um, reflected on these like very specific cultural experiences that are specific to Ethiopia. Um, but you often find a lot of these very collective communal experiences within the, the Black diaspora. Uh, myself, I'm Dominican. Um, and so I can... I have my own host of experiences where I see the community coming together to to grieve, to share joy, to like express these very human experiences. And um, it's funny comparing that to Western to Western experiences, like a funeral, which is very silent, or um, yes, these these other situations. And so, how do you see? Uh, um, how do you see? Or how do you connect that to, it seems like a Western, like inability or um, rejection of anti-Cartesian philosophy, which seems to stem from this idea of the collective? Yeah, that is a really good uh, question. Um, yeah, I I don't know if, I mean, like, I, I come from a very collective communal background and I try to ground a lot of my work in that tradition, in that philosophy. But I'm also somewhat familiar with, uh, you know, the Western uh, perspective. So they vastly differ. And generally speaking, I don't know if it's if one can justify saying one is better than the other. They are just different. Uh, if we go back to the funeral example, for example, uh, Ethiopian people believe uh, it's it's good for you, it's good for your soul to when someone dies, someone close to you dies, you you come to terms with it through expressing your sadness, your anger, through whatever means by crying, by being open about your feelings. People cry, people beat their chest. It's it's that's what pe- people believe even uh, so uh, i've been in ireland for for some time and even here the ethiopian community in ireland so one of our friends her mom died while we are here and because of you know her complicated uh, asylum ship status she wasn't able she wasn't allowed to leave the country she wasn't able to go back to ethiopia to attend the funeral and that experience really made it stark for me how her not being able to see her mom being buried and not being able to experience she could we she lives in a very small apartment with a, a lot of other people so a lot of us gathered to tell her the news and we were trying to comfort her but she couldn't even cry out loud because she would disturb her other uh, other people who are living around the apartment. So even trying suppressing her feelings, uh, you can see how much, you know, how problematic that is because 
you know, for Ethiopians, it's, we believe it's really, you really have to, that's your opportunity to, you know, for exposure. So, uh, but here uh, in, in the West or in the US, people believe the other. It's, it's much more respectable to compose yourself, to not show any sign of weakness. Uh, so I guess it really comes down to what you are used to. I don't know if one is better than the other. Uh, so this is one example that you brought, Stanley, that shows there are just two different ways of things. And um, I don't know, they coexist. Sometimes they complement each other. Sometimes they are incompatible, uh, incommensurable. And uh, I guess it's the tension will always forever exist, I, I suppose. Um, uh, thank you so much for, for making the time to come on the show, uh, Abeba. Um, My I'm pleasure. In- thank you so much for a really interesting conversation. So before we close out, could you please share anything? It could be something you're reading, you're watching, that you'd like to recommend to our listeners. Uh, so um, I recently read, uh, I'm sure you've all read it, uh, Ruha Benjamin's Race After Technology and um, I am also picking up a book that I have read many years ago, uh, Ubuntu, I in You uh, and You in Me by uh, South African scholar Michael Beetle. The book is forwarded by uh, Archbishop Desmond Tutu. And I'm also, I have so many books going, going at the same time. I'm a very messy reader. Uh, I also have a book called uh, Cooking Data. It's uh, by an anthropologist who examines, you know, uh, how data are given shape. And she goes and does her work in the uh, remote parts of, you know, Ghana and uh, various African countries. Uh, so that's also a cool book. Dope, dope. Ilan, you want to go next? Uh, yeah, I recently came across an, uh, an Athens-based architect called Katerina Kamprani, who has this great series of objects at a website called theuncomfortable.com. And they're just these kinds of like absurdist design objects. And I find they're just like bring me a little bit of joy. Like they're just like, it's like, a toothbrush at an unusable angle or like a watering pot that the spout bends back into its own, like, like where you fill it, um, or like a very wide teacup. Uh, I don't know. They're, they're all just like a little bit nonsensical, a concrete umbrella. And, and they're, they're really quite a lot of fun. She has some 3d visualizations and some prototypes. I don't know. It's, it's a little bit of like absurdist design object, which I kind of enjoy. Yeah. I like things that kind of, you know, gets you out of your comfort zone. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. For myself, I'm currently reading uh, Giovanni's Room by James Baldwin. So uh, doing a bit of reading, uh, just casual literature in um, like with Black A text. But on top of that, I'm current. I'm deciding which book I'm going to start first. I just received... Um, uh, Ruha Benjamin's Race After Technology yesterday, actually. And I also received um, The Body Keeps the Score, uh, which is a book on trauma and healing. And so I'm kind of deciding which one I'm going to start as soon as I finish Giovanni's Room. Dope. I definitely love Ruha all day long. I love Race After Technology and also the edited volume that she released last year, um, Captivating Technology. So many, so many mm-hmm. great writers in there. Um, I have been attempting to read less depressing things to help with my sleep. I haven't succeeded this week um, in particular because I'm working on an episode about COVID-19 and Rikers. Um, And I've been thinking, a friend of mine, Molly Shores, published a piece in Mother Jones called Nothing But Death inside the nursing home where New York City's most vulnerable struggle to survive COVID-19. It's about Kohler, a nursing facility that's actually on my block. Um, and a lot of my friends live there and they just like many places and similar to Rikers, they just don't have the ability to socially distance. And the institution is dysfunctional and lied about having enough uh, personal protective equipment and masks. And um, there's already been 70 cases of COVID-19 and just reflecting on like 
the responsibility to document what's happening right now at the margins where people have been kind of almost deep deemed surplus population and like not fully human enough to count as part of the pandemic um, and feeling frustrated. Like, is it enough to tell the story, but feeling like you have to also. Um, but thank you. Thank you so much again. And this is the end of the We Be Imagining podcast um, today. Again, it's Thursday, April 30th. We want to hear from our listeners. So please definitely email us at webeimagining at gmail.com with your questions, suggestions, comments, things that you're reading. We definitely want to interact with you. Um, and we're out. Bye. Rate and subscribe. Oh, yes. I'm always supposed to say, <laughs> write and subscribe. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yes. I'm not good at the business end. We are now available okay. on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and all other major podcast platforms. Also, please check out on the American Assembly website slash WBI podcast. You can see custom illustrations developed by Kashmiri cartoonist Mir Suhail for every single episode. Um, and we look forward to hearing back from you. Bye.